Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Called Podcast. A place where anything goes and no subject will go untackled. Tonight, I welcome documentary filmmaker Mark Cavino of such films as A Band Called Death and The Crest. Mark, how are things? <laughs> They're, uh... Pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's an understatement. <laughs> how are how are you doing? You safe over there? Ah, as safe as you can be. <laughs> yeah. As long as stuff doesn't start I, opening up, uh, we should we should all be okay. <laughs> which I don't think is a good I, yeah. thing where you're at. And no, I happen to be in the worst state in the United States right now, unfortunately. <laughs> We uh, we here in Georgia just uh, we don't believe in the virus. We just pray it away. <laughs> well, same with Texas. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> They're a close second. <laughs> uh, I tell you, it's it sucks. <laughs> Let's go to uh, to a lighter note, and I want to take you way sure. way back. And what was the oh, first? Wait, hold, hold on one second. Yeah. Hey. I went out to buy some Labatt for the occasion here. Oh, beautiful. Well, then I have uh, to ask yeah, the question, American beer or Canadian beer? Uh, always Canadian beer. Always. <laughs> I saved that one for you. <laughs> oh, it's pretty good. It's got a little Clorox around the rim. I sprayed the hell out of these things before I brought them inside the house. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm okay. surprised we, that you we, found blue down there. Me too. I, I was shocked. I was looking all over and I couldn't find it. And then I looked in a far corner of the beer section and there it was kind of hidden in the back collecting dust. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, <laughs> let's take okay, you way, way back. <laughs> and what was the first album and first film that really sold you on the art forms and made you want to pursue filmmaking as a career? The very first film that that kind of gave me the, I guess, the bug, you know, for obsessing over film and wanting to make film was 100% Ghostbusters. Uh, I was a kid. It was 1984, I think, when that came out. So I was about five. And by the time my mom had the VHS tape, uh, I had worn it out so bad that you could barely even watch the damn thing. I watched it like seven times in one week, I remember. And she beat the ever-living shit out of me because of it, too. Um, but that was my entryway. And then, of course, you know, there was the Spielbergs and the Star Wars and all of that. Um, they were very influential. Um, uh, but it wasn't until probably middle school. So that, that was like my entryway into obsessing over cinema in middle school is when I started thinking about making cinema. And that was because of a teacher that asked me one day, he's like, you really seem to, to like this movie thing. And you're always drawing pictures and talking about, you know, building your own sets and, and filming your own little action figures at home. Why don't you, uh, why don't you aspire to be a director? And I didn't really understand what a director did until he brought that up. And then I looked it up. I was like, Oh yeah, that's what I want to be. Uh, so it was pretty much from the age of nine on up. I've, I've, that's been my goal. <laughs> uh, music is a different story. Music is just something I discovered on my own just by being with my mom, who was a big fan of music. She had vinyl records. We would always listen to the oldies on the radio. Uh, I mean, she just she listened to just about everything, even hip hop and and like techno music. 
And I just, I took it all in from her and explored more because of her influence. Well, do you think that growing up in New York um, influenced or changed your taste at all to music and film? Did it play a bigger role in your life because of being there at such a young age? Uh, in, in terms of New York and music, the biggest influence on me was definitely hip hop because I was the only white kid in my school and the, the only white kid uh, in my class, <laughs> actually. I was in special ed. Um, but hip hop music was the only music I, I was listening to because that's what the other kids listened to. And I got really into it um, uh, at a really early age, I guess. Like, you know, we're talking late 80s, early 90s. And um, I even got my mom kind of, kind of into it. But that was the only influence being in New York ever had on me. I, I didn't get into the punk scene. I didn't get into, I didn't get into any scenes because I was in special ed. I I was locked out from the real world, so I had to discover it on my own, just from observing people. And um, without a doubt, the hip hop scene had a bigger influence on me than anything at that time. So being there, like kind of at the beginning of hip, like well kind of the beginning of hip hop were you like involved in the tr in the uh, tape trading and all that kind of stuff around new york too <laughs> yeah i was actually i i remember it vividly i i just remember a lot of bootleg tapes being traded and sold and and i still have i think uh a snoop dog tape <laughs> that's a bootleg tape that's got a badly printed uh cover on it um I, th I think that's what you're talking about. <laughs> like yeah, of kids course. were selling them outside of their trunks, you know. <laughs> so, <clears throat> the transition to Vermont. Why did you decide to <laughs> study film in Vermont versus just staying in New York? Well, I, I never intended to leave New York. Um, I uh, I had a. Uh, a I, w I was like an only child living with a single parent, um, and uh, we had the strong bond over the years, and she was very loving, but around middle school up to high school time, she started to get a little nutty uh, to the point where she attacked me and, and tried to kill me one day, and uh, this was after months, if not years, of abuse, um, and at that point, I was about 17 years old. I had had it. I was I was done with the circus and decided I was going to run away from home, and I did. And I tried my best to stay in New York and to finish high school in New York. Uh, I was I was sleeping on my friend's floor. Um, his parents were super kind to take me in, and um, but for the most part, I was abandoned by her at that point after running away, and I had no place to go. And my dad, who was living in Vermont at the time, um, he's lived up there since the late fifties, actually. Um, he just hit me up one day and said, Mark, you're, you're being a burden on your friend's family. You got to come back up to Vermont and live with me and finish high school up here. And it was a bummer. You know, I, I had a girlfriend at the time uh, who, who was in Long Island and, and um, I didn't want to, you know, I had friends. I had a thing. I was a New Yorker. I didn't want to leave New York. Uh, but I understood that I probably was getting in the way of my friend's family with raising their child or their children. I should. I should say it was three kids that they had. I feel so terrible for staying there. Uh, but, but that's what I did. You know, I was 17 years old, moved up to Vermont and finished high school. And, um, and it was while uh, after graduating high school 
there was a local filmmaker up there that was shooting a feature using mostly uh, teenagers out of high school as his crew. And they were all going to be guided by kind of interns who were already kind of established filmmakers out in the world um, who were going to teach us how to make a movie. And so that was my first experience actually being on a real set. And it was on that set that a kid uh, clued me into a college in Vermont, a film school called Burlington College. Um, and at the time, coming out of you know high school, by the time I had hit uh, my junior year in high school, I was out of special ed, but I did. I didn't. I wasn't as smart as other kids because I was held back for so many years. So I knew I could never get into an NYU or UCLA. You know, I only knew those as like the film schools. But this kid on on this set of this Vermont film was like, "Yeah, you should try this college, Burlington College. It's here in Vermont. Anybody can get in. It doesn't matter what your grades are. And the coolest thing is, unlike NYU, where they make you wait a couple of years to touch a film camera, you're shooting on film as soon as you start." So I was like, all right, I'll do that. <laughs> so was it in Vermont that you were like, that you got the documentary bug or did this come later? What what was the end goal for you in terms of the filmmaking? Um, I mean, I, you know, like since the age of nine, like I was saying, it's, it was always narrative film was my goal. I just wanted to make, I wanted to make big Hollywood movies. I wanted to make, uh, the films that influenced me like Ghostbusters, um, and, and then later on in high school, when I got into the horror genre, you know, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and stuff like that, um, I just wanted to make narrative films that told stories that uh, got people to feel emotions and never intended to make documentaries. I had seen a couple, uh, but they weren't my thing. And um, I was going to college at Burlington College. Um, and a, a couple of friends of mine were crowding together and trying to figure out a way that we could make the first feature at Burlington college. Cause nobody had made a feature there yet. And, uh, we, you know, we knew we didn't have money. We didn't have talent <laughs> talking about ourselves. Um, we knew we, we couldn't shoot on film because we didn't have money. Um, <laughs> uh, so we were like, well, what, what can we do? We have, you know, this little, I think it was like a Sony VX 2000, I think was what it was called. It was a camera that my stepmom bought me for my birthday, a little three CCD chip, mini DV camera and and so we all figured well we have this camera it's not that bad but you can't really shoot a movie movie on it why don't we shoot a documentary and and to you know make more of a narrative film why don't we do it like a mockumentary and so we decided each one of us was going to play a character uh making this movie and we turned the cameras around on us and, and film us trying to make the movie and then every time we interviewed people that was a real documentary so it was like a combination of real and fake I think I was heavily influenced by This Is Spinal Tap. And, and the film we all decided to make, because we were all from different parts of the world. You know, I was from New York. One kid was from Georgia, ironically enough, <laughs> like the state of Georgia. Um, another kid was from Africa. Uh, he's from Ghana. Um, so we all decided, we all figured, you know, we moved to Vermont and we all think Vermont's weird. And Vermont people are very weird. Uh, like they're just so different than any other people in the United States. So let's make a movie about how weird they are. Uh, and we called that documentary or mockumentary, what state is Vermont in? And, th and that's what I spent three years shooting, uh, in the first couple of years of film school. And it's, I guess, essentially my first full length feature. Uh, it's a terrible film, but <laughs> it, it taught me, it's where I cut my teeth in interviewing people and, 
and kind of how, you know, learning how to piece it all together. Um, but shortly after that, I was just done because it was three years of my life making that mockumentary that, you know, we only showed a couple of friends and family and that was about it. It, it wasn't, it wasn't impressive to me. It, it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, so I kind of, I thought that was it. I thought it was a one-off and I, I made a couple of short films, narrative films. And, uh, and then, um, somewhere in there, uh, my mom, who I was estranged from, from running away from home, finally got in touch with me and found out I got married and, and we reconnected and had a couple of years of just, you know, loving each other again and, and, and strengthening that bond. And, and then I found out why she got in touch with me. She had cancer and she was dying. And, uh, and then she died. And I subsequently got writer's block and I couldn't write anymore. <laughs> so I couldn't do my narrative films anymore. Um, I didn't know any writers at the time. And, and so I was kind of, you know, caught between a rock and a hard place, I thought. And uh, creatively, I was just blank. But I wanted to create. I didn't know how to. And, and it was around that time that an old friend of mine, uh, who I met when I first moved to Vermont, he had since gone the full sale down in Florida and, and took up filmmaking there and then moved out to L.A. to be a screenwriter and, and realized that was never going to happen. Uh, he hit me up out of the blue uh, and told me uh, he wanted to make a documentary. Uh, he had a couple of ideas and, and he thought I would be into it because I, I made that What State is Vermont in movie. And, um, and I, I told him, if the ideas are good enough, I'll do it. And one of his ideas was good enough and... So we went out and started making uh, a, my first real documentary, which was, uh, oddly enough, it was on hip-hop music. Um, it was on a group at, based out of Connecticut, uh, fronted by these two uh, young white rappers who were trying to bring conscious music back to hip-hop. And what made it intriguing to me was one of the white rappers was a, uh, he was limbless. He was born without any arms or legs, and he bounced around the stage like a jumping bean, and he sounded like Eminem. And so I was like, I'm sold. That's the film we're going to make. And I spent four years making that. <laughs> so with all this hip-hop influence, what led you to death? I, um, by the time I was doing the hip-hop documentary, I didn't like hip-hop music anymore. <laughs> I, I have such a weird relationship with music. I, at that point, I was fed up with hip-hop music. And I just, I was more intrigued about these kids' passion and, you know, the fact that they hung out with some of my idols from when I was a kid, like, you know, uh, Chuck D or Wu-Tang Clan. So it was fun to film that. But at that point, I was just so done with hip hop music. It wasn't something that pleased me as much as uh, heavy metal and rock and roll, specifically classic rock. And I wasn't even a big punk guy. I, I liked some punk songs, but I wasn't familiar with punk music or the punk scene. Um, so... It was around the time I never finished that hip hop doc. I tried starting to edit it, but through losing money on it and and losing a producer on it and almost killing myself in a major car accident filming it, I decided I was going to kind of put it on hold. And um, I was pretty depressed because that was about four years of my life working on that, and it felt like that went nowhere, just like the What State Is Vermont film. And so I was looking for anything creative to do. I, I I was again in the spot where I had this creative block. Ooh, hold on, time for a little bat. Okay, good. Um, I was in this creative block, and um, this friend of mine hit me up and said, "Hey, I'm I'm gonna be DPing this music video by this uh, local filmmaker named Jeff Hallett." And you know, I had heard that name before. 
he went, th- this friend of mine that hit me up went to Burlington College, and we both knew Jeff Hallett kind of from Burlington College as this guy that went to college um, pretty much in between the years that we didn't go to Burlington College. So we had heard of him, and I knew that he was this bald-headed, tatted-up, metalhead guy. And and I was like, all right, cool, I'll do a music video. What is it on? And he's like, oh, he says it's a, it's a poppy punk band, but it'll be fun. You know, it's, it'll be like a two-day shoot. And so I was like, whatever, I'll go, I'll go help this guy. I don't know, make his music video. You know, my friend's the DP. Why not? It'll be fun. And I was essentially like an AC assistant camera slash, uh, it, it involved a lot of balloons. I was a balloon thrower. <laughs> um, but it was on that music video that I met this guy, Jeff Hallett for the first time. And, and we really hit it off just immediately talking about horror films and talking about heavy metal. And, and I was like, I like this guy, this guy's cool. And, and he was kind of like chill and Zen, unlike me, who's kind of loud and <laughs> I don't know, annoying. Um, but uh, he started telling me towards the end of the shoot, how he's friends with this band, uh, you know, that is called death. And there are three black guys from Detroit, Michigan, who played punk rock music before, you know, the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. And he was telling me all this stuff and and how um, the news just broke about them. Like, nobody had heard about them for years. He knew them as a reggae band himself for his entire life of knowing them for 30 years or so. Um, and so he was shocked. And um, and he was telling me all this. And I was like, I, I don't believe any of this. I was thinking in my head. But I guess Jeff... Uh, was looking to shoot a mini like 20 minute documentary on them and was asking me the reason he was telling me all this was he was asking me if I wanted to help him shoot it because he knew I had some camera skills and uh and I told him no it's like <laughs> documentaries suck man <laughs> it's fucking pain in the ass I, I spent thousands and thousands of dollars on these things I haven't gotten anywhere with them I, I almost died making one of them uh, I'm on the verge of selling my house because of that one um I was like, I, I'm not interested, but I do like rock and roll, and I like some punk music. So I told him at the time he was saying that there was a New York Times article written about them, and there were two tracks that were online, a song called Keep On Knocking and Politicians In My Eyes. And um, and he's like, what if I sent you the New York Times and the songs and maybe a little synopsis for how I see the film coming together? And I said, sure. And he emailed me the night of the shoot the night the shoot ended i was <laughs> he was obviously like eager to start shooting and uh and i blew it off <laughs> i blew that email off for like two weeks i was like fuck this guy <laughs> i don't know jeff hallett is I, this band ain't real <laughs> like i thought i thought it was just one of those things like a, a guy just trying to help his friend's band you know um you know kind of making it sound bigger than it actually was but two weeks later uh, truth be told, I was sitting in my office staring at the wall thinking about suicide because I was nowhere with my career of being a filmmaker. I had a feature doc that, you know, the hip-hop doc that just kind of crashed and burned, and I didn't know how to finish it without any money, and I didn't even have an ending for it, so that was kind of a bummer. And, and I was a fan of of music that involved instruments a lot more than hip-hop, so I was like, let me let me just look at this guy's email and just see what this is all about, and... And I remember I I, uh, I read the New York Times article. For, well, first I read the synopsis. I was like, okay, I see where he's getting at. This is exactly what he told me. And then I read the New York Times article, and I was just completely floored. I couldn't believe what I was reading. It was real. It was a full-page spread writing about the band. Um, and then I played Keep On Knocking. It was the first death song I ever heard, and I fell out of my seat. 
I, I could not believe how amazing that song was, how familiar that song sounded, how badass it, it was, how clean it sounded. I was expecting like a garage band type song. I was expecting it to sound dirty and, and rough, but instead it was it was like beautifully produced and and then you know I played politicians in my eyes and that was that was it. I called Jeff back up immediately and I was like, dude, this ain't no 20 minute documentary. I'm going to help you make this. It's a feature length doc. We're going to spend years of our lives. We're going to fucking lose our houses. We're going to lose our wives, but it's going to be so fucking worth it. <laughs> and that's what we did. <laughs> that was the, that, that was the long winded version. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh no, please. What was the interview process like on, on a band called death? Did you find that everybody was pretty genuinely open to speaking to you or since it was like, everybody's kind of first mainstream feature was it a struggle to get people and to take the project seriously or did that new york times article actually help uh, by the time we started shooting everybody was pretty much fully on board and, and fully open um there were a few struggles um the, the band in no way at the beginning wanted to talk about uh, David Hackney, who's the leader of the band, who's not with us anymore. They didn't want to talk about his alcoholism and his subsequent kind of downward spiral towards the end of his life. Um, and that was rough because we knew it was important to telling their, the band's story and their history and, and telling David's story. Um, so we spent a good year and a half filming them to get them to loosen up and to finally tell us that story. And they finally did. And, and we see it in the movie as it is. Um, outside of that, uh, they were pretty open. It was, it was a very, it was a loving, caring experience. It was almost like we were all one great big family um, by the end of filming. Um, so there was really like not a lot of trouble. And I, I at that point, I had made two feature length docs now interviewing people. Um, I even worked, I produced a, a doc for PBS. Uh, so I, I had gotten uh, very familiar with how to get people comfortable and loosened up before interviews, and, and that helped a lot, too. So next comes The Crest, and it's a huge <laughs> departure from a band called Death. Was, mm -hmm. it, was it the surfing angle? Was it the Irish angle? What drew you to that <laughs> project? It, it, at first... It was the, I don't want to be known only as the filmmaker of a band called Death Ankle. <laughs> um, I mean, there, a band called Death got a lot of press and, and accolades and buzz. And, and it, it was draining and depressing to me even. Um, I, I mean, I was happy. I, you know, finally I had like a real film that people cared about. But at the same time, I started getting worried that I'm going to be defined by this film with everything I do. Um, so I, I was looking for the next film. I remember my producer, by the way, on a band called death, uh, is a guy named Scott Mosier who, uh, he started with Kevin Smith producing clerks, chasing Amy dogma. Um, he also produced Goodwill hunting. Uh, we were fortunate enough to find him halfway through filming a band called death. And he's been a big, uh, influence and, and, uh, kind of mentor for me. And, um, I remember I asked him towards the end of making, a band called death, like while we were in the, you know, while we were editing, um, uh, I asked him, I was like, so what, what do I have to do next? Like, what, what's my next step to moving on as a filmmaker? He's like, you got to have the next film lined up. He said, you can't just make the one film and assume films are going to be coming to you. You have to have 
at least three or four more ready to go. And I didn't have any ready to go at the time. And, and so, you know, all that buzz and, and shit was happening when the film got released. And uh, out of the blue, uh, <laughs> the same kid that hit me up about the hip-hop doc hit me up about his cousins <laughs> who were surfers. And he's like, hey, he, I, he came up to me actually at the Vermont premiere of A Band Called Death. It was after the screening and after everybody had, had complimented us on making the film. He came up to me uh, and was like, hey, Mark, I, I got this idea. Uh, my, this is my cousin. He had his cousin, Andrew Jacob, with him, who's a surfer. Um, and he's like, he just learned about his cousin, uh, DK, who lives out in California. Andrew lives in Cape Cod. They never met before. They're, they're both surfers. And they met because a fiddle was found in an attic in Ireland. And one of them, you know, was researching about their great-grandfather and learned about the fiddle and then found the other surfer through a blog that was written about the fiddle. And and they're all thinking about meeting for the first time in Ireland and, and learning more about their grandfather and, and this part of Ireland, which was a, an island that was secluded out in the ocean away from the mainland, uh, to learn more about their ancestors and how they lived in their relationship to, the, to their ancestors uh, in relation to what they do in their lives today. Um, there's a lot of parallels there. So everything that John was telling me was just reminding me of a band called Death with the record being found in an attic and... and the sons not knowing about their dads being in a punk rock band their entire lives and then becoming punk rock musicians. There's this kind of similar theme of, of kind of blood lineage, uh, you know, history, uh, you know, do, doing what your ancestors did. And, and, and so I told John, I was like, yeah, that sounds really cool, man. Let's talk more about it. And, and I had met his surfer uh, cousin that night and, and he seemed very interesting and entertaining and, I was like, okay, well, at least one of the subjects is entertaining. I got, I got to know what the other guys like and see if this story is actually worth exploring. Uh, I think at that time, even, I had told my friend that approached me, I said, I think this would make a great 30-minute documentary. <laughs> and uh, and uh, here we are. Now it's my second feature doc that's been released. <laughs> so did you take up surfing? Or, and subsequently, did you take up any instruments after a band called Death? Have these projects inspired you to, to go further in these topics? Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's funny. Both the band called Death and the Crest have gotten me to really, really want to try uh, surfing and playing instruments. But the, the problem with me is I my mind only kind of focuses on one thing and then it obsesses with that one thing. It's partly why I'm not, I, I'm not a prolific filmmaker. It's why I don't have like a hundred films that I've made, like a lot of indie filmmakers out there. Um, like I, I really like when I work on a film, I'm only working on that film and not thinking about anything else, not even art or, or music or anything. Um, so it's been really hard to focus um, on, on the things that I said, Oh yeah, man, a band called death really made me want to learn guitar or, or even bass, uh, or even singing. Uh, and I got close to, you know, maybe even taking a class, but then the crest fell on my lap and I started working on that and that distracted me. And, and, and my only focus was on the crest. And, and then I was like, wow, surfing is fucking awesome. Like I, I'm a skier myself. Maybe I could learn how to surf. And, and Andrew Jacob, who's one of the main stars in that movie, who's a surfer. He's the one I met that night. Um, he teaches surfing in Cape Cod and he was going to teach me, but I, uh, I had a new film fall on my lap, which, you know, kind of brought me to Georgia. So that all fell apart. 
Well, as a skier myself, now I have to ask, are you going to do a skiing dock anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I would like to. I, I grew up, you know, it's funny. I, I said I wasn't uh, famili- that familiar with docks before I started making that What Saves Vermont in film, but I actually was. Uh, my dad, every year I would come up to Vermont to visit him we would watch a Warren Miller film at the ski lodge at Sugarbush North. And it was one of the most awesome bonding experiences with my dad. And, and those were really fun movies, uh, the Warren Miller films. They were filled with beautiful skiing, beautiful scenery, a lot of humor, um, awesome music. Um, so I, one of these days, I, I would really love to just travel the world and film a skiing doc. It would, that would be a dream of mine. Warren Miller gets played religiously in my household, so... Oh, nice. Awesome. Yeah, great. I mean, you know, RIP. Great, great filmmaker there. Um, hold on. It's time for another little bat. Hold on a second. Ah, oh, there we go. So would you ever, like, consider making another music documentary, though? Is there any, like, bands you've been itching to talk to? Anything, like, in the back burners? It's, it's been a dream of mine since early 2000s to make the official documentary on the plasmatics. Um, they're a heavy metal band from the early eighties, uh, kind of an experimental heavy metal band fronted by a wild woman named Wendy O. Williams. Um, it just, I love that band so much. I love her story. It's very tragic story the way it ends. Um, unfortunately I, I, I got in touch with one of their early band members and he essentially told me the reason there isn't a doc out there on them is because I guess her, her late husband has made it almost impossible legal wise. Um, there's a lot of legalities involved and you'd never be able to tell a true story about the band. So I was like, all right, I kind of threw that idea aside. Um, I'm not particularly like, it's not a thing with me to want to make music docs. A, A band called death fell on my lap. Um, I'm actually living in Georgia now because of a music doc that brought me here. Um, and, and the only reason I'm doing it is because I'm a huge, huge fan of this particular musician and, um, their art over the years has influenced me and, and the family is being, this musician isn't with us anymore, but the family has been very open with me and, and, uh, and it's, it's been a very awesome, uh, kind of collaboration uh, with them in making this film. So, so I, I have I, I have one I have one more music doc coming out, and then I hope it'll be my last. <laughs> well, can you give us any insight in into the new projects? Um, I I can't. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, there's a lot of of issues involved with this particular person, but. Uh, um, what I can say is that it's somebody that it transcends all art forms in a way, um, from music to films to fashion to animation to you know voice work. I mean, this this person, you know, to, you know, you look outside your window and see people walking on the streets. You see the influence of this particular person uh, in everyday life now, and so I'm very excited to bring their story. Uh, their official story out there for the first time. I'm kind of shocked that there wasn't anybody that has made this film yet. Um, I'm very appreciative that his family, uh, after seeing a band called death hit me up and, and wanted me to be the one to tell this story. It's, it's quite an honor. And, and I, 
I hope I, I hope I do it justice. <laughs> that's the, that's the most I can actually say about it. I guess we, we are all very excited for that. Do you get, can you give Thank us you. any insight on your, uh, on, on the black Panther do- uh, project? I should say, what, what is that all about? How did, how did you fall into that? Is, is this the black police officer film? Yeah, that, um, that's currently kind of in limbo. Um, the, how that started though was, um, the, I guess I'll tell a brief story. So, um, in the early 1970s in Boston, uh, Massachusetts, uh, crime was really high. It, I mean, it was a very dangerous place, particularly in, in parts of Massachusetts, like Dorchester and Roxbury, uh, predominantly African-American communities. And uh, the police were having issues patrolling these communities. Uh, the police station was like 3,000 white officers and 98 black officers. So there, there wasn't, you know... There was a lot of racism involved, and, and there was a lot of issues with white officers uh, not knowing how to take care of black communities. And so under the guidance of the NAACP, uh, the police commissioner in Boston uh, decided to uh, create an all-black police unit called the Soul Patrol. <laughs> and uh, they would patrol these, these streets, uh, which most of the Soul Patrol members, most of the black officers, lived in these towns to begin with. Um, and within the first night of their existence, uh, crime rate went down tremendously. And by the end of the week, there was barely anything going on. Like they, they had sweep these towns of, of a lot of the brutal crimes. They even found a, a serial killer that uh, people were after at the time. So um, my, I, uh, I read this article written in the Boston Globe about uh, this, uh, this unit. And I was, I was uh, instantly... Uh, remembering all of the great black exploitation cinema that I grew up watching and and influenced by it, and I started seeing how I could do like a cool hybrid uh, documentary slash narrative film, kind of like American Animals. I don't know if you've seen that or or Reds for that matter, where we're watching a narrative but we're hearing from the voices of the actual people of who we're watching the film that's based on. Um, and I, I just, I started, it, it started getting my creative juices flow and I was really excited about it because here I am, I'm finally able to do a narrative film, even though it's still a documentary. Um, and I met with a couple of, of the members. Uh, there were 35 Soul Patrol members at the time. Only seven are currently alive. Um, I, I hope still, um, given the situation with COVID-19, but, um, but yeah, uh, I got in touch with them. I filmed some stuff up there, but, uh, as far as that film goes, I I had a producer I brought on briefly to help me start it, and and she kind of, you know, basically put me in a position where I had to end filming and end working on that film for at least a year to just, you know, get over it. <laughs> and uh, I'm probably going to go back to it, but it, it's been a rough film to go back to uh, now that the film I moved to Georgia is finally getting off the ground. I, like I said, I focus on one film at a time, so it's hard to juggle both films at the same time. The The issue with both films is that there are people I need to interview who are very old and, and time is of the essence. And I only have so much time with certain people before they pass. And I, I, I really would love to get everybody's stories recorded um, before they pass. Uh, Cause it's, to me, I just it, it's it's a lot more truer if it's coming out of their own mouths, you know. 
So getting getting to dip your toes a little bit into the narrative features, do you see yourself maybe if you complete that or even if you don't complete that film, stepping into the narrative features at all any anytime soon after this next Georgia doc is done? Yeah. Um, uh, this uh, after this next film, uh, <laughs> I'm kind of in a, a really weird crossroads where. I, I kind of, after years of aspiring to be a filmmaker and working my butt off to be a filmmaker, uh, I almost feel like I'm done with the whole industry. I just want to leave it now. Um, dealing with film distribution has been very uh, tiring and, and very depressing. And learning how little films make these days has been very depressing. And, and um, I just, I think there's a lot of factors involved with, uh, the killing of m making films as a living art form that something that artists can live off of is just like not existent anymore. Um, and so it's just, I'm very, I'm very much wanting to leave the industry that said a lot's going to depend on how big and how well the next film does. Um, if it does really well, I'll definitely use it to my advantage to try to make a narrative film next. Um, I, I should at least make a narrative film before I give up filmmaking altogether is what I've told myself. So um, th that's the goal. <laughs> so it doesn't sound like you're really that positive about the state of the industry right now. <laughs> Would you no, say that? I, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm definitely the least positive person to talk about the state of the film industry. <laughs> well, do, do you think streaming has made it easier or more difficult to break out in this industry right now? Where where do you see it going? Oh. Um, I think streaming has it's it's really weird. It's created this double edged sword, you know. Um, now any filmmaker can get their film seen. You know, it's great. It's a great time to get your film seen. In terms of getting any money from getting your film seen, it's a terrible time to be a filmmaker because now there's like for every Kevin Smith, there's. 20,000 Kevin Smiths <laughs> making the same Kevin Smith movie and popping it on VOD. And these distributors are buying these movies in huge batches for a couple of bucks. You know, they're buying movies for like a thousand bucks here, a thousand bucks there. Movies that cost $200,000 or more to make, they don't care. You know, they're just going to take it, pop it, crap it out with like 500 other movies. And, and then it's going to disappear into the ether unless you got a big movie star in it or unless you have some kind of a a hot topic or you had you were lucky enough to have a big distributor like Netflix or Amazon back it and, and fund it. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really weird time. It's, it's a time that I, I don't feel like I am meant for this, <laughs> this kind of distribution, this era of filmmaking. I, I feel like I was meant to be a filmmaker back in the seventies or eighties, you know, or even the nineties, uh, you know, where you, you, put all your blood, sweat and tears into a film and then it's bought for a million dollars, you know, or $2 million. And, and then it gets a festival run and gets distribution and gets a lot of praise and you become the next Kevin Smith or, or Tarantino nowadays, you know, most filmmakers are just a fart in the wind. It's, it's how many friends you can make on the festival circuit. And, and if you're lucky enough, how many friends you can make just from people seeing your movie and discovering it online when they're just, you know, binging whatever BOD platform. But yeah, I'm sorry. I'm a downer to talk about with this kind of <laughs> the side of the business. <laughs> I think a bank, a, a 
a band called Death did a lot to really crush my spirits. So that was that was a pretty successful, I thought, somewhat big film for a documentary. And I still haven't seen a penny from that. And it hasn't gotten me any work in the industry. It, it's really done nothing. <laughs> with the exception of this latest film. So I guess it, it, it was good for that. <laughs> well, do, okay. Being well received by the audience and critics, the way that a band called mm. Death was, do you think that that... Mm negatively affected making the crest was it easier was it worse how how or was it just non-existent it, nobody really gave a shit yeah yeah it was kind of, i it's hard to tell we did do a kickstarter for the crest yeah we did a combination of kickstarter uh raising money on our own just by going to investors kind of the old-fashioned way and uh uh my friend who who asked me to make the film on his cousins, uh, his dad is an he's an executive producer on it. He's a millionaire, so we also had his money in case we ran out of money. So, it, it, no matter what, it seemed like we were going to get the film funded. Uh, but through the Kickstarter and through meeting with investors, I definitely did use a band called Death to try to sell myself to people. Um, I brought it up in the Kickstarter video. Uh, I when we met with you know, these money people, these investors, I would give them a copy of a band called death on Blu-ray and, and be like, this is who I am. This is the kind of film I make. And I'd be like, just please watch it and then get back to us. So I guess in, in a way it helped a little bit there. Um, ultimately most of that film was funded by my friend's dad. Um, uh, you know, we raised about 30,000 on Kickstarter for that. And then maybe another 20,000 through meeting with investors and, and it's about a $300,000 movie, so the rest was definitely uh, paid for by the kid's dad. Um, you know, it, it's 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 definitely had a little bit of help in my career, but just not the level that I expected it to for what it actually did and accomplished. Um, but I, I, I'm proud of it. I'm happy I made it. it. You know, the great thing about A Band Called Death is it, in a way, kind of rewrote history, the the movie and the band are mentioned in the Smithsonian now. Uh, the Library of Congress asked Jeff and I to come up and host a screening this past January, and now it's in the Library of Congress, so that's really cool. Um, so it's it's you know at the end of the day, I, I didn't make the film to make money. It's it's just uh, a level of kind of respect that I was hoping we would get that we never got from the industry, um, I guess. Um, but I'm very happy that the world has found the movie and that people continue to watch it and praise it and love it and, and relearn about the band. I mean, it, we made the film first and foremost just so that people could discover the band. Um, and the same with The Crest. You know, I'm very proud of that. You know, we made that so that we people could learn of this hidden Irish history um, that, you know, we felt was very important to get out there. So, Well, I want to get back to death in a second, but... I want to mm -hmm. go back to the downer notes. <laughs> what, what do you, That's my favorite topic. Just like the lack of cinema quality. And I've done mm -hmm. writings on this. I've talked about this for years. My biggest mm -hmm. thing about right now in the state of film, it, it deals with digital. Anybody being allowed to do it. And it's quick and it's yeah. cheap. And you can just, because it's digital, you can just film. And it doesn't matter. You don't take the time to rehearse. You don't take the time to have that cinema quality. And and I think yep. the thing that made films of the past amazing and great 
and stand the test of time, it really it it has to do with the rehearsals and getting it right before yeah. you put it on celluloid. Do you think that there is a lack of cinema quality these days? Uh, uh, one hundred and no, one million percent. Yes. <laughs> I, when when I went to film school, uh, we had to learn on film. And so I was very accustomed to having to have the script locked down, having to have the sets and costumes all figured out, having to rehearse with the actors to make sure that they can get on their marks and get and get the scenes done right and add whatever they needed to add into the script before he even pressed record or press roll or whatever we called it on the film camera <laughs> uh, before we ever started rolling. Uh, we had to have everything locked down, you know, cinematography figured out. It was very little kind of learning on the fly. And I think that that is the best way to learn how to make films because I still apply that to everything. Even my docs, I, I structure my docs like a narrative film. I, I try my best to at least, um, uh, I just, the more you pre-plan, the more, more time spent on, on going over the look and feel and, and emotion of the film, the better that those films are going to be. And I feel like a lot of films these days are lacking that. Um, so I, I definitely agree with that. I would say that a lot of people would say that the cinema quality is going to television. I highly disagree with this, but what is your take on it? Uh, the, well, could you repeat that again? Sorry. <laughs> Just like the cinema quality and, and the, well, I guess like the kind of storytelling that we used to get oh, in the 70s. The, the golden... it's, yeah, it's just yeah. kind of going to television. Do you feel that way? Um, it, yeah. <laughs> That's it. I hear that a lot. Um, I am so, I'm probably the worst person to ask about this for one reason. <laughs> I I only watch movies. I hate television. <laughs> I, uh, I I try. I, I really try. I try to get into Breaking Bad. I, I try to I try to watch shows. But if it's not told in in a narrative structure and a beginning, middle, and an end in a short amount of time, I'm just not into it. I, I am so bad with it. Um, I'm surprised I even sat through Tiger King. <laughs> it's like. Um, like I just, I just, I want, I want my ninety-minute to two-hour film, beginning, middle, and end, and I just want to be out of there. <laughs> um, so I, I, I do. It does seem like uh, there's some good creative stuff going on on television, but I, I'm definitely not one to speak about it because I just don't watch it. I, I only like watching films, and 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 I could say without a doubt that the quality of cinema that I see in theaters feels very cheap these days to me. Um, you know, I think I read something that Deacon said recently talking about this as well. And, and, um, and so that, you know, it's, it's a bummer, but I, I think that there's a way to save it as long as, as long as there's a couple of filmmakers out there pushing, uh, you know, pushing the old ways, <laughs> I guess. Well, I guess that brings that me to my next nice. question then COVID-19 restrictions aside, do you think theaters yeah, are yeah. dead do you think there is a future for theaters? Do you have any idea what theaters can do to survive? What What do you think the future of that kind of cinema is? I lean more towards uh, this is 
I mean, theaters were struggling before COVID-19. <laughs> you know, they were, they, were, they were doing a little bad. Um, I think COVID-19 could essentially be the nail in the coffin of many theaters. Um, I, 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 I just, I have a really hard time seeing how theaters are going to convince people that they're going to keep those, those seats clean and safe for the general public. Uh, before COVID-19, every time I'd go to the movie, and, and this is coming from somebody that only wants to see movies in the theater. I love the theater. I hate seeing movies at home. I, there's nothing better than being in a theater, especially by yourself, <laughs> you know, and just sitting down and taking in the movie. Um, that said, every time I go to the theater these days, or before COVID-19, I would bring Purell wipes. I'd have to wipe down the whole fucking seat. There'd be grease stains from somebody's head, you know, finger stains from their digging in their popcorn they don't clean those seats and, and i'm a germaphobe so like it's, it's always bothered me um but now you know after COVID 19 um i can't trust that they're gonna clean those seats even if they say they are like you know i i you know a little side note with what i'm dealing with is i have a cancer patient that i have to protect during all of this and i know that we're not going to be going to a theater anytime soon even if they do reopen probably for not a couple of years. And that sucks because we're both cinema lovers and we both enjoyed going to the movies. Um, so I, I feel like it's the beginning of the end, even though the beginning of the end was a while ago. Uh, I, I just think it's rushing the process. I, at the end of the day, I don't think theaters are always going to be, I don't think they're going to go completely away. I think we're always going to have some cool, like art house cinemas that survive hopefully. Um, but this COVID-19 is, is the best thing that could have happened to the, the Hollywood industrial complex because now they don't have to go through the middleman anymore. Now they could be like, oh, you want to see Invisible Man? Fuck the theaters. Go see it at home for 20 bucks and invite 10 of your family members around. That's a steal. Of course somebody's going to want to see that movie at their house instead of going to the theater and risk getting this virus and killing somebody in their family. So I, I think the theater, I think the, I think Hollywood's loving this. <laughs> I think uh, the theater chains are hating it. Um, and it, you know, only time will tell, but I, I really, it, I struggle to see how theaters can survive this myself. Um, I, I love the idea that I keep seeing on, on Facebook about drive-ins coming back. I would fucking love that. Drive-ins have always been my favorite. It kills me that they went away. Oh my God. There, there's one in Vermont that I would go to every summer. That's, I would only see movies there because I get to see two movies for, you know, basically the price of one. And it's a drive-in. It's so badass. You sit in your car, you know, just, I don't know. It's, there's something romantic about the drive-in. Uh, down here in Georgia, there's a place called the Starlight, I guess. It's a big drive-in. I haven't been to it yet, but uh, I'm definitely going to go check it out um, as soon as they open. Because um, that, that is a safe place during this virus um you know as long as you stay in your car or wear a mask if you go outside um but yeah i mean this, this virus has really turned the world upside down it's pretty crazy well speaking of like smaller theaters and stuff being in georgia mm -hmm. do you think that turner classic movies and the whole tcm being there has helped the the smaller theaters have you gone to those smaller theaters is there even a scene there does tcm being in georgia well, do anything for that community i don't see them doing anything in terms of theaters um uh we do have some good art house theaters there's a place called the plaza which is a nice old theater 
Um, they usually show a lot of old films and sometimes they show newer movies like, like when Mandy came out. Um, and they, you know, they always have events where they have the celebrities or the stars come and do a Q and a, and I think they even do Rocky Horror picture show every Friday night, but God, I don't know if they're ever going to do that now. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, there's that, there's another place called the independent, which is kind of cool. They show old movies every now and then. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. Cause in, in my, I think like a germaphobe in my mind, it's just like, I can't go. I, to me, it's like playing Russian roulette and I love going to theaters, but I just can't go anymore. I can't bring myself to do it. Um, other people are probably more willing than me. They're, they're <laughs> you know, God bless them. You know, I mean, I, I hope that they're able to keep these theaters going, but, um, but yeah, as, as far as the film scene down here, there isn't much outside of a couple of little art house theaters. There's no draft house cinemas here. Um, I know that draft house had an issue trying to get the license, the, uh, zoning figured out. Um, you know, we have a lot of AMCs and a lot of regals and I went to the AMC around the corner for me before this. Um, and they would show indie films. It was great. Uh, you know, they had reclining chairs and, but every time I'd go, those seats would be so freaking filthy. And it's just a shame. I, I just, they, you know, they're not paying those poor kids that work there enough to clean those seats. And, and then those kids are just risking their lives. And the whole thing is a mess. It really sucks. <laughs> so do you see festivals becoming a bigger thing in the future for, I guess, the sustainability of cinema? Wow. That's, that's interesting. So I, I'm on a I'm a board member at a, a film festival in Tennessee, uh, the Chattanooga Film Festival. Um, it's a great fest. It reminds me a lot of the Calgary Underground Film Festival, and um, it, it's like a genre fest, I guess, primarily. Even though they sometimes they show films like my film, A Band Called Death, um, and you know we're we're having to do a virtual film festival for this year's fest. It it was finally announced on Monday. Um, we're teamed up with Microsoft to to do this very experimental type of online film festival. Um, but outside of that, in terms of the future, um, I know for me personally, going to film festivals in person has benefited both of my films. It's It's created a fan base for the films. It's created a fan base for me. It's gotten me to be able to connect with people on a human level and, and talk about what they loved, what they hated about the film. I, I have relationships with people now that I met when A Band Called Death first got released in 2012, and, and they're like family to me. Uh, filmmakers now, you know, I'm friends with all over the world filmmakers um, who I consider family. And, and um, I, I, I think film festivals, I, I hear some filmmakers bitch and complain about them and like, you know, I fucking paid this amount of money. I didn't get into one film festival. These film festivals suck, blah, blah, blah. I get it. I get it but film festivals get a lot of films and sometimes they go by a genre that they're going with or, or a theme that year. And, and if your film doesn't fit that theme, it's not going to fit into that festival. Um, you know, there's all these kind of, you know, wonky politics involved no matter what. And it has to be involved because of what they're dealing with. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I feel like film festivals are, are really helpful to filmmakers. I, I hope that they're able to survive this. Um, but it, you know, it, you know, South by Southwest and a couple other big ones did their 
Netflix thing, and and I hear a lot of filmmakers talking shit about that. They don't like how that all went down. So hope hopefully what we're doing at Chattanooga, which is a little bit uh, better, I think, uh, in, in what we're doing, I I hope it works, and and maybe it's an answer to if this virus lasts longer. It just sucks that people can't meet in person. It's a real bummer. I don't. I, I probably didn't answer your question. <laughs> no, you did. Getting to travel around the world, did you notice that there it's was amazing. like a lot of different reactions and how everybody received your film? Is there a huge difference between Canada and the United States when it comes to audiences for you? Yeah, um, every it's in, in in the United States, every state has been different, and outside the United States, uh, every country has been uniquely different. It's that's the one thing I love about going to these film festivals. It really, you know, as a filmmaker or an artist, it, it exposes you to, to what the rest of the world is thinking, you know, outside of your bubble. And, um, I think that's important. Um, I, I got into this at the very beginning because I wanted to make films that the whole world could enjoy. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to just make, I mean, yeah, I, I, I had this like, angsty period where i made films that i wanted to piss off people and i still kind of want to make those kind of films but at the end of the day i just really want everybody to be able to find something in my films and, and get something out of it and and traveling around the world with death and and the crest um has been a very positive experience um you know canada really embraced the film when it played up there and and the band even performed um, at a really cool venue and, and everybody was just so into it. And, uh, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. Every single place is unique and different and teaches me something new about the film and about myself pretty, pretty much. much. I have to say about that death performance and for anybody that doesn't <laughs> know, there is this little, it's on the train tracks, completely <laughs> run down dingy little bar Garth Brooks has played there. There's been like some <laughs> names play there, but it doesn't sound good. It doesn't look good. It's a weird little place <laughs> on the train tracks. I will say seeing death performing there was one of the best sounding shows I have ever seen in my life. And I go to a lot. I mean, a lot of shows. So I, I hope that you were proud of that performance from those boys how many like oh, yeah. live performances did they get to do uh, touring around with the film? And do you have any highlights from it? They, my, it's funny. My, my favorite performance to bring up was while we were actually filming the band uh, do their tours. Um, it was, it was their second show. It was in Chicago, their very first tour ever in their entire lives. It was around 2009, I guess maybe 10 um, they were going to play Detroit for the very first time and then Chicago. And by the time we got to Chicago, me and Jeff, I had this massive headache and I didn't want to film. It was this little dingy kind of cramped bar and there was a lot of people there and, and it was a rowdy crowd. And I just remember telling Jeff, I don't know if I could film this. My head's going to explode. And he's like, all right, you could sit this one out. And I was like, nah, I can't. I, I mean, as much as I don't want to film, I do want to film. And so I forced myself to film that. And as soon as the band started performing, this bar, I, I think it was called the Empty Bottle. 
I think was the name of it. I think that's the Chicago one. Uh, this bar, everybody in the bar started throwing beer bottles in the air and cups in the air. It was like that scene in, in Blues Brothers. <laughs> and, and a fucking beer bottle hit me in the head when I was filming the band. And literally that beer bottle knocked the headache right out of my head. And I was like, holy shit, this is awesome. And I was like, film everything. <laughs> so, so like that that's my favorite performance. But but yeah, uh the band uh touring with the film, that was supposed to be more of a thing. Uh we talked to Draft House about it. We were like, listen, like we think it'd be really cool. And and Draft House agreed with us. I, 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 you know, we probably had a mutual agreement on this that the band should tour with the film. That way, it's you know, it's promoting the movie, it's promoting the band, it's more people are coming out to see it because of that going on. Um, at the end of the day, I you know the, I think Draft House expected the band to just tour on their own, and the band really wanted Draft House to pay them something to be able to do it, and it just didn't work out because. Draft House Films didn't even have money to pay us, basically. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, it didn't work out. And the band only kind of performed at whatever whatever film festivals reached out to them personally. But shows like the one in Calgary, like you just mentioned, or the one in Amsterdam, where the band came out with us and did a performance there. Um, and they even came out to South by Southwest, too, actually. Um, those are the shows that that really stick out for me. The ones where it was the film and the band together. Uh, those are, those were really memorable shows. They were great for both us and the band. I just, I, I wish that there was more of it. I wish draft house and the band could have came to a, a better agreement there on that. Cause I think the film probably would have made more of a, more, it would have made more waves maybe if they did that, but. Do you think it that it helped it that the film was on their subscription program? I think it helped us for that first year. Um, we we got a tremendous fan base for the film because of it being a Draft House film. Um, you know, they Draft House eventually uh, even gave us this really badass uh, Blu-ray release. This I had this idea uh, th- that I wanted like a gate-folded record almost where it's the Death Blu-ray on one side, a band called Death Blu-ray on one side, and that... Uh, re-released for death 45 uh you know on the right side of it and it would have pictures and stories and then i had about two hours of special features that i threw on so you know it was a dream of mine and draft house made it come true they you know it was a limited edition it was pretty badass and then even just the regular uh blu-ray slash dvd that wasn't the gatefolded version with the record even those were cool they had all the special features um but yeah i mean it 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 definitely helped to be part of that family for a brief period of time. And, and unfortunately, you know, draft house films kind of fizzled out. Um, they became neon, neon pictures and whatever is left of draft house is just one guy that's running it. And basically all the films are just collecting dust. You know, they, they stopped producing Blu-rays and DVDs. So you can't even buy the damn thing anymore. Um, I think you could probably still find a couple of copies at Draft House Cinemas in their DVD Blu-ray vending machines, but at the end of the day, they're basically just waiting until our contract is up and just letting whatever pennies come in from uh, VOD, you know, go to their pockets. So <laughs> I will say <laughs> that shitty. I, I, <laughs> I I own that limited edition version, and it is absolutely fucking awesome. Uh, <laughs> it's so cool. I mean. 
you know, God bless them for doing it. <laughs> they didn't have to do that for a little documentary. And, and that was an amazing, like that DVD is one of my favorite uh, DVD releases that I own. And it just blows my mind that it's like a movie I made. <laughs> that, that one of my favorite special editions, special limited editions is like one of my movies. <laughs> so did you reach out to Wayne Kramer to write the liner notes to that? Or did Drafthouse do that? We we did that. Uh, Wayne's actually interviewed for the film. He's he's in one of the deleted scenes, um, and it sucks we couldn't fit him into the film. I Jeff and I were bummed. We were really hoping to get him in. I mean, obviously, anybody that knows Wayne Kramer, he's from the MC5, one of the Godfathers of punk rock. Um, we tried our very best to fit him in, but narratively, he just didn't really. The things he was saying didn't fit in line with the rest of the story. I think we're also more family focused for all the stuff he was talking about where he would have, you know, been able to pop in and we didn't want to break away from hearing from the family. So, you know, it's a bummer, but if you, if you're able to find the DVD, (laughs) uh, there's a great deleted scene of him on there. And I also have it on my Vimeo page. I'm pretty sure I have it free for everybody to see, or you could find it on YouTube. Um, But he says some great things about uh, David Hackney in that. And then, uh, since we're talking about Wayne Kramer, I just want to say a few years after the release of the film, I, I hate the director's commentary that Jeff and I did for the draft house release. I think it's terrible. <laughs> we, were, we were both so nervous at the time and it was our first director's commentary. And and I, I don't even know if Jeff really knew what director's commentaries were at the time. And I knew what they were, but I just, I, I told draft house, I was like, the only way this is going to work is if we have a moderator and so they sent, you know, one of their guys to be our moderator, and it's just a disaster. But a couple of years later, uh, the Nerdist uh, uh, reached out to us, and I guess uh, Legendary Pictures runs the Nerdist, so it was technically Legendary Pictures, and they were like, we want to do a new commentary with you guys, and uh, anyone, if, if you want to invite, you can. And we were like, well, Wayne Kramer. <laughs> so we invited Wayne Kramer, and so we all went out to L.A., filmed at The Nerdist, a whole new director's commentary with, with Wayne Kramer, who we filmed for the documentary, who didn't make it into the documentary. And it was during that commentary, which I think you could, you could find online on one of their websites, you know, I don't know where the Nerdist is keeping this, but anyway, it's a great commentary. And what makes it so unique is we thought Wayne Kramer had seen the movie by that point, and apparently he hadn't. <laughs> so we're we're doing this director's commentary with Wayne Kramer, and he's he's just like, "Wow, that's that's really good right there." <laughs> like, "Oh, didn't you know that was going to happen?" He's like, "No, I've never seen this before." <laughs> couldn't believe it. <laughs> so it's that's one of my favorite com- that's my favorite commentary if people could find it. Um it'd be great. I I know that the nerdist was recording it for one of their little subdivisions that doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> I think it was called Alpha. Um so if anybody could find it, it's a great commentary with Wayne Kramer and, and if you want to see what Wayne Kramer has to say about David Hackney, just type in Wayne Kramer a band called Death on YouTube or Vimeo and you should be able to find that clip. Did you go see any of the MC50 shows? I did, yes. Uh, it was awesome. He was coming to, to Atlanta, and so I used my A Band Called Death cred to get backstage passes. <laughs> it was amazing, man. Um, such a great show. That Those boys really performed well. Um, God, that was one of my favorite live shows. That was so good. That was like a year or two ago? Was it a year, a year ago? ago? Yeah, it was I like two, year, two years ago, I think. 
man, just watching legends, you know? Well, and that's a, he just like put together a complete super band. Like that, that know, thing was insane. So good. Oh, well, would you say out of the, like the last five, maybe 10 years, there's any standout bands or films that, uh, that you like kind of want to pump up that are that were influential to you in your art? Um, let's see. There's a, there's a band that I discovered at a film festival in Mexico. Um, I'm probably going to mispronounce the name. <laughs> let me, let me just type it in here. It's called Les Boucherettes. <laughs> um, I'm sure I'm not saying it right. Les Boucherettes. Uh, it's, it's close. It's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really awesome band who, that I discovered in Mexico, and, and I kind of been obsessing over them. Um, did you say like music films or just films in general that I want to promote? <laughs> films in general, bands in general. Has anything in the like the last little bit just blowing you away? Um, actually, my my buddy Jeremy Gardner did a film called after midnight that completely blew me away. Um, I, I really dug it. Um, I, you know, it was one of those movies that, uh, when I was watching it for the first half in my head, I was thinking this is going to be just like every other mumble gore movie. You know, it's going to be a bunch of guys talking about a monster. And then the ending of the movie is going to happen. There's going to be no fucking monsters, no payoff. Um, anyway, his, his film paid off in spades and, and it's one of my favorites. Um, I, I was very impressed to see how he's come as a filmmaker too, from, you know, he, he directed the battery with his, with his buddy Christian and, and, um, and then did a film called Tex Montana that I think nobody has seen. (laughs) Um, and then he did this film, which I think is just a really well-made indie film. Um, I can't think of many others um i've seen a lot of good films but nothing that i was like oh my god i was shocked at that (laughs) um well i want to end on a weird note so the fbi has just released some ufo like footage and as someone (laughs) who worked on history's ufo hunters what is your stance (laughs) on this whole thing and working on it (laughs) Did you change your mind about the whole thing? Were you already made up before? <laughs> or did you even watch the show when it came out? So, so you saw my credit. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's interesting working on that show. I got to see the behind the scenes. And um, what I could say is those guys on that show are full of shit. <laughs> it's, all, it's, all, it's all fucking, you know, for show. But the people that they were going to interview legitimately believed in this shit. And some of them were, were really kind people. And, and when you talk to them, you you really start to question, like, maybe they really did see this shit. Um, you know, one guy I met was all shaken up still about all of it. Um, and he, he it happened to, he got abducted when he was a teenager. Now he's like a 60-year-old man. <laughs> um, uh, I I personally... I know that there's life out there somewhere else. I don't think anybody's coming to visit us. <laughs> I think I, th- I think if there were aliens, we would have seen them already. We would be fucking talking to them right now. <laughs> just, I also feel like they're point, not going to come to America. 
why would they want to come here? I mean, look at this. You got the vice president walking around the Mayo Clinic without a face mask for crying out loud. I mean, this is like, this, this country's a disaster. <laughs> why would they want to come here? Maybe they'll do some more anal experiments. Maybe that maybe we need it. <laughs> so how long how long can we expect before you move up to Canada then? I I want to move up there now. I I am I mean, hey, I I've always been a patriot of my country and have tried to, you know, back my country up, but the shit that's going on now is just absurd. It's ridiculous. I mean, we are we are such a pathetic country right now with how we're dealing with this pandemic and, and how we're dealing with human lives. It's just so sad and sickening and, and I am done with it. I, you know, moving to Georgia definitely helped with that. <laughs> I mean, we, we have a governor that's a moron that opened up way too early as cases were rising. So we haven't flattened our curve yet. We, we just had about 30 people die last night for crying out loud. Um, so I don't, I, it seems like you guys have things locked down a lot better up there. And, um, and to be honest, every time I've, you know, lived in Vermont for 17 years, been to Montreal many times, uh, and been on your side because of the film festivals, uh, many times. I just like the people up there a lot better than down here right now. <laughs> well, I appreciate that and I hope everybody else appreciates that too. I want to thank you so much for being on this. And I really hope that we get to check out your new film sooner than later with the world in the state it is right now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Make sure you check out Mark's films, A Band Called Death and The Crest, and keep an eye out for future work after the pandemic. Until next time, this concludes our broadcast day.